is a mess and you're totally stressed out just call trend just call trend when your wife is cold as ice and you need some advice just call trend just call trend he'll shoot it straight and he won't say no he'll just give you that advice and say well there you go. Oh, hello, and welcome to another episode of There You Go with Trent Mabry. I, of course, am your host, Trent Mabry. It's another special episode this week. I interviewed Joe Toplin. Joe was a writer for Late Night with David Letterman, In Living Color, The Chevy Chase Show, The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. He was the head writer there, and he went on to be the head writer of The Late Show with David Letterman as well. We talked about all that. We talked a lot about comedy writing, how to get started. Uh, it's a great talk. So here it is. My interview with Joe Toplin. Well, thanks for doing this, Joe. Well, thank you for inviting me, Trent. I appreciate it. Uh, so where'd you grow up? I grew up in Boston, city of Boston, the West Roxbury neighborhood. Yeah. And went to school there and only really left uh, when I got my first job out of business school. I moved to White Plains, New York, just north of New York City. And, yeah. Uh, and then spent uh, decades there in the New York area. <laughs> when when did you realize you wanted to just, like start doing something with comedy? Because you didn't start out uh, like you when you weren't like a big comedy nerd when you were a kid, right? I wasn't a comedy nerd, but even as early as elementary school, I was uh, I was cracking jokes in class and, and annoying the teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I but I also got really good grades, so I was getting these. Yeah, I was getting straight A's, but I'd get like a, a B minus in conduct, which is like your behavior in the classroom. And it was because I just, it was just cracking jokes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, I, I had a friend, I think it was in the fifth grade, who at one point asked me, where are you coming up with your jokes? How are you coming up with your jokes? And I didn't know what he was talking about because uh, like other kids would read joke books and then share their jokes in class. And, and I was like, I wasn't doing that. I was just kind of, I guess, saying stuff that people found were funny. And, uh, and so he asked where I was coming up with it. And so that was the first time I, I realized, you know, maybe I'm just kind of able to make funny jokes and kind of improvise. So mm-hmm. that was kind of the, the first in- inclination, the first inkling that I had that, that maybe I kind of had, had jokes as, as a part of what I enjoyed. Right. And then you went when you uh, joined. You went to Harvard, and then you joined the Lampoon. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> that that wasn't easy. You have to get into Harvard first. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so I I, I, I didn't spent, mean to downplay uh, that. <laughs> uh, sometimes I think people think, well, of course you had it easy. You got you, you were mm. on the Lampoon. Yeah, but to get there, you have to get into Harvard. Right. Uh, so so I had to work really hard in uh, junior high and high school, and I got obviously adequate grades to get into Harvard and mm-hmm. get a lot of extracurricular activities. Uh, I get into creative writing in high school too. We, we had a class where we had to, to keep a journal. Uh, we had to write for, I forget, 15 minutes a night, uh, whatever we wanted to write about in the journal. And in retrospect, I, I realized that that was the, the most fun homework I had. We right. just, just just writing anything. 
And eventually in my senior year in, in high school, I, I won the, the creative writing prize. So that should have been an, an indication that, oh, maybe I'm going to be a writer and I should really pursue this in college, which of course I didn't. I, I mm -hmm. got to Harvard and, uh, and I didn't major in English. I didn't. The only writing I did at Harvard was uh, when I did get on the Lampoon, which is also not easy. You have right. To, what was the process to... like of getting into the Lampoon? There's uh, there at, at the time there were two competitions a year, and uh, you show up at the Lampoon Castle and go into a room, and, and somebody explains the procedure. And the procedure was something like, for eight consecutive weeks, you you write something you think is funny, a funny comedy piece, and you drop it off in the building and throw it on the floor of one of the rooms, and all candidates uh, pieces are there and members drift in throughout the week and, and read your pieces and write comments on them and uh it, you you adjust what you're writing maybe according to the comments and uh and then there's there's a vote mm -hmm. and so it's a it's a competitive process and but that that was when i first started to systematically try to write comedy and, and uh and I, I learned a lot from from the other Lampoon members, as you can imagine. Yeah, there's a lot. Of, there's some pretty impressive people at the. the yeah, time. yeah. Um, at the time, the the uh, well, I don't want to say the funniest, but uh, one uh, of my my fellow Lampoon members, who when I was there, was Jim Downey, mm -hmm. who turned out to be a, a an early uh, member of the writing staff of Saturday Night Live. Mm -hmm. And later on was one of David Letterman's early head writers uh, after Meryl Marco. And so that he was uh, very influential uh, on my comedy. And as it turns out, I'm really glad I met him and, and stayed in touch with him because like any job, networking is, uh, is important. And, you know, show business isn't an exception where that comes from. It's networking in, in any profession. You meet people, they have, they trade tips and, and the opportunities and, uh, and that helps too. Mm -hmm. Moving ahead. The comedy well, community. Yeah. Uh, what I'm was sure the, you know well, <laughs> I'm figuring it out. Uh, what was the, what was the story with the thing with John Wayne that you did it with the land? <laughs> oh yeah. Um, well, it, it's kind of a long story that the short version is we had an opportunity to, to challenge, a legendary, iconic actor, John Wayne, to, to premiere his, his latest movie in Harvard Square. And this was towards the end of the Vietnam War, and John Wayne was a, a, a real hawk when right. it came to the Vietnam War. He, was, he, he made a movie called The Green Berets. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the idea of, of him premiering his movie in, in Harvard Square just really appealed to, to us on the Lampoon. And I happened to be the one to answer the phone when when the, his representative called and, and suggested the idea. And so from then on, it was just a matter of figuring out what we were gonna do with John Wayne when he appeared. And um, my, my father at the time was uh, in, the, in the army. And mm -hmm. I went home at one point and, and uh, we, we knew John Wayne was gonna show up at the Lampoon Castle, but we would have to take him to the Harvard Square Theater to premiere his movie and have a question and answer. So I, I was looking for a, a, a fun mode of transportation to get him from the, the castle to the Lampoon. And, and I thought of the Green Berets and, and I thought it would be provocative to 
to to ride him there on a jeep like an army jeep and so i asked my father was there any way that he could uh, get us a jeep and and he said uh i could get you a tank <laughs> <laughs> and so my, the top of my head exploded and i i said wow a tank so it, yeah, it, it so turns out better yeah of course <laughs> yeah so it just turned out uh they weren't tanks we had two armored personnel carriers and again this is at the, the tail end of the vietnam war and and we we paraded john wayne on these armored personnel carriers through harvard square leading to to what i, I think I, I heard a police officer say that it was the biggest crowd ever assembled in harvard square in the history of, of cambridge and uh, it made every news outlet that you can think of. It was on the, all three national news shows that night. Uh, it was covered uh, by the foreign press and every newspaper in, in, uh, in the United States had an item, John Wayne on a tank in Harvard Square. And, and uh, the question and answer got a lot of attention. And he was, he was very funny. He was really funny oh, yeah. at ad-libbing jokes. So, so it was a really cool prank for the Lampoon because we, we sort of, we pranked Harvard Harvard, right. extremely liberal. We pranked them into loving John Wayne. That was a lot of fun. And I got yeah. to ride on one of the armored personal carriers with John Wayne. <laughs> yeah, you can't beat that. So uh, so um, I'm really glad I had the chance to do that. It was yeah. a lot of fun. What was your major at Harvard? I majored in engineering and applied physics. I was okay. basically applied mathematics, which jump forward a few decades kind of relates to what I'm doing now, but we can get into that later. All right. Uh, but yeah, it was uh, programming computers and learning about applied math and decision and control and a little bit of electronics. So again, nothing to do with writing really formally anyway. Right. So how'd you, cause you, before you got into writing for Letterman and stuff, you worked at Columbia pictures. I did. Yeah. I was, my first job out of business school was with General Foods. I was in consumer packaged goods, which also turned out to be experience that was useful later on in, in uh, working on TV shows and working on the staffs of shows and figuring out what does the audience want and what can we do to get them what they want to get the ratings up. So that was a nice mindset to be able to, uh, to acquire. But I decided at one point when I was at General Foods that I wanted to be in show business. I really was excited by the idea of making TV shows and, and uh, I wasn't thinking about comedy in particular, but I thought it might be a, a, a nice half step to, to work for a big movie company. Mm -hmm. And a headhunter called me and, and uh, I said, sure, I'll consider other jobs, but they have to be in show business. So I got a job as the assistant to the vice chairman of the motion picture division at Columbia Pictures. And I was mostly doing math. I did spreadsheets and strategy planning. And one of the projects I worked on was I, I helped, I was on the team that started TriStar Pictures, which was oh, one, okay. of the, one of the first movie studios that had been started from scratch in many years. Mm -hmm. And so that was fun too, just to be a part of, you can still see the the Pegasus horse occasionally. Yeah, at, at, yeah. That's like, hey, TriStar. In fact, it almost, uh, it almost had that name. For, for a while, we were considering the name Nova Studios. And, and that was because it was three in the morning. I was working on a, a Lotus 123 spreadsheet of cash projections to, to, to show how this movie studio would perform. 
and I, I had I had to name the file something. So I said Nova. I just came up with this idea. <laughs> Uh, for the movie studio and, and it turned out that was seriously considered until somebody realized oh there's a there's a show on pbs i guess oh know, yeah, yeah. A science show so we can use it <laughs> so uh so that was fun too just creating something out of nothing or helping to create something out of nothing mm-hmm. then had the show uh had how getting writing for letterman come about i had stayed in touch with uh, Jim Downey, and I also knew a few of the other writers on the staff of Late Night with David Letterman, and I heard that there was going to be a few job openings. Those writers were going to leave for other projects, and Jim Downey called and said, hey, we're going to need writers. The show's going to need new writers. He, he didn't want to leave the show with such a big hole in its writing staff, Right. so he, he said, uh, Hey, do you want to submit something? Do you want to write a, a submission and maybe, you know, get a job and lay out with David Letterman? I said, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> uh, um, uh, and again, the only reason I kind of got the call was because I knew Jim from, from way back in the lampoon and, and he knew my work. So that, that kind of applies to anybody who's trying to get a job in show businesses, you know, write writing samples and, get them into the hands of people who know your work and like your work and, and meet people and network. And, and you don't have to be in the lampoon. Mm-hmm. The, the lesson here as well, you know, have to be in the lampoon. No, you, don't. <laughs> you, just, you have to be in my, in my opinion, you have to be a part of the comedy community, right? Fellow, fellow comics, uh, sketch groups. This is, I've got my, my teacher hat on now because I used to teach late night comedy writing too. Mm-hmm. This is what I would tell my students is, hang out with people who are excited about the same things you're excited about enjoy the same sort of comedy that, that you're excited about and and people will trade tips somebody will get an agent and then through the agent they'll they'll find out oh seth myers is reading submissions now and you'll get the secret email to send submissions to mm-hmm. i don't know how that's how that's uh, whether seth myers gets submissions that way but <laughs> But yeah, it just information gets passed around. So that's that's how I found out about the, the opportunity on the Letterman show. I this will tell you how long ago it was. Uh, consumer VCRs were, were very expensive, but mm. I I had a job. I didn't want to stay up till the show was on twelve thirty to one thirty. I didn't want to stay up till one thirty every night studying the show, which you have to do if you're writing right. for a show. You have to learn the show and the voice of the host and all that sort of thing. So uh, I, I spent money on a VCR. I taped the shows. I watched a few weeks of shows and kind of decided, oh, yeah, okay, I see what he's doing. I see what they're doing. Um, I guess I can kind of write stuff like that, but not exactly like that, which is mm-hmm. what you're supposed to do with a writing submission. You write stuff that's like the sort of stuff they do in the show, but not exactly the sort of stuff they do in the show because they can do that. And so I submitted my material and... Um, met Dave and didn't embarrass myself and, and got hired. Do you remember anything that was in the submission packet? Did they end up using anything or? They did. It was, uh, the, the, when, when I got on staff, people were, were not literally heading out the door that day, but within days of leaving, everybody was leaving within a week or so. And they still needed comedy for the show. Mm-hmm. And I had written some new gift items in my writing submission. 
Uh, later on, I found out they call them wacky props. Yeah, we're going to do wacky props. Everybody turn in wacky props. So I had, I had written some wacky props, uh, gift submissions and uh, gift ideas. And, and the, the idea of the piece is here are th some things you can, uh, you can buy uh, as gifts if you want to give them to your loved ones. So, so I, I think this is the first joke that I ever got on television and it got a laugh. Uh, and the joke was, uh, everybody wonders when you shut the refrigerator door, does the little light inside go out? Well, now you can be sure with this. And Dave is standing next to a, a refrigerator with a, a piece of cloth over the top and he takes the cloth off with this, the refrigerator periscope. And it's this sort of German U-boat type periscope attached to the top of the refrigerator and he swings it around and, uh, and he pulls the handles down and he goes, yep, the light's out. And then he, he turns the, the periscope <laughs> back around. So it's a way to check whether the light is a, a much ado about nothing right. overkill way to, to check the light inside the refrigerator. And, uh, and it got a big laugh. <laughs> and, and so I was encouraged. I thought, mm -hmm. oh, okay, maybe, uh, maybe I can do this. And eventually they stopped using jokes from my submission packet and I actually had to write new stuff <laughs> right. in an office on demand uh, in 30 Rock. So, yeah. uh, so that was another hurdle I had to, had to jump over was mm -hmm. <laughs> writing jokes without having the luxury of, of thinking about them for days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, yeah. I can imagine that would be tough. Uh, what was your first meeting like with Dave? I don't remember. Yeah. Uh, it, so it must have been pretty. I literally don't remember. It must have been short. One thing I do remember about it is, and this doesn't have to do with Dave directly. I was literally coming from about ten blocks north on Sixth Avenue, was my office at Columbia Pictures, and I I wore a suit and tie for for my job, and I <laughs> and I was smart enough to realize, oh, if I walk in there for a meeting with Dave and I'm wearing a suit and tie. <laughs> He's not going to be seeing a comedy writer. He's going to mm -hmm. be seeing some guy in a suit and tie. So I had a gym bag. I told the people in the office I was going to you know, go to the gym. And uh, I changed. I found an office in, in the, the Dave's suite of offices. And I changed into like, you know, blue jeans and a, and a Lacoste shirt or something casual wear. I changed. I dressed down for my interview with, with Dave. And um, I'm glad I did because something happened bad yeah. <laughs> in the meeting. <laughs> and then I, put my, I put my suit back on and went up to the office. <laughs> How long had the show been on uh, when you joined? About a year, maybe a okay. little more than a year. So really the template of the show had been set. Mm -hmm. uh, Meryl Marco, Jim Downey, all the other writers, they, they really created a lot of the, the types of comedy, a lot of the desk pieces, a lot of the, the refillable pieces. Uh, the, the types of videos the show was doing they did all that and, mm -hmm. and so people like me came in and, and the other writers and and it, the fact that we had so much great stuff to, to base the new stuff on really made the job easier than it could have been right uh, all we all we had to do was not mess it up and and then eventually once the show got to the point where okay we're doing the stuff that that they had been doing uh, then uh we started to try new stuff and and stuff that hadn't been done before. Mm -hmm. So in the early days, was Dave more accessible or did he still kind of keep to himself? 
Um, he always sort of kept to himself, but I would say in the early days, he was more willing to try crazy things mm -hmm. <laughs> that the writers, the writers came up with. Like uh, one idea I proposed was we would do a, a video out of the, out of the studio. And the idea was that Dave would go to a Hertz rental car office. Uh, he would rent a convertible. We would see him driving the convertible to a car wash and he would drive the convertible with the top down through the car wash. <laughs> and, and then, and then he would go back to, to Hertz and return the car. And that's exactly what happened. <laughs> he, he, he drove the car, he, he drove the car to the car wash. And the only question he had for me was, like, is there any chemicals in the, in the water that's right. going to be sprayed on me? Because he didn't want to get blinded, yeah. <laughs> which is understandably, you know. Yeah. But but otherwise, uh, no body doubles. He just drove that thing right through, and he was totally soaked. It was probably you know, six inches of water in the, in the convertible at the end. <laughs> and then he had to change into dry clothes, and it was, uh, uh, it was a, a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And it was just, that's an example of how, willing dave was to 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 try stuff just right. <laughs> just because the writers wanted to try it and you almost you know set him on on fire i i did uh actually a couple times yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is another another example of how forgiving he could be mm -hmm. the, the one time that I almost set him on fire was we were at the top of the five-story tower and we would drop stuff off the five-story tower to see how it splatted on the cement below just because it would, it would make these very attractive and, and cool patterns of destruction. And I had the idea to fill a watermelon through a, a full of napalm and, and they would set it on fire on the roof of the tower and, and kick it off and it would explode with a, a blossom of fire on the, on the cement. So we're up there, um, I'm mixing the napalm, the, the, the prop person had hollowed out the watermelon, we're pouring the napalm into the watermelon. There's a, a rag coming out of the top of the watermelon, which is a wick. So Dave does his introduction, um, which was something like, oh, you want something good for a picnic? How about this? So a, a watermelon full of napalm. And he has a, a cigarette lighter and he, he lights the wick. And I'm crouched on the roof right next to the melon. He's standing a couple of feet away from the watermelon and the, the flame is creeping towards the, the top of the melon and it's gonna ignite the napalm inside the watermelon. And we're just literally like a foot or two away. And so I get really nervous and I, I whisper, kick it off, kick it off. And, and finally at the very last minute, his timing, of course, he's a television professional, timing is everything. Kicked it off just in time. It exploded in flame, and um, nobody was hurt. And it was very cool. And I never, <laughs> I never figured out why why he was waiting. <laughs> right. <laughs> very dangerous. But uh, and and the second time, um, not to dwell on these fiery near near accidents uh, for for too long. But we were outside on the street. We were doing a, a tape where Dave was going somewhere, but on the way he is accidentally handed the Olympic torch. At this point, the Olympic torch is being carried around the country. And the, the mm -hmm. joke was somebody's running along with the torch and hands it to Dave thinking he's the next person to get the torch. And, and Dave would just throw it aside uh, and, and continue on his way to the other task that we had assigned him. So the the torch kept going out. It was a gas, a, a gas 
powered torch. And and Dave didn't want to spend a lot of time on the sidewalk shooting this, and I didn't either. So I said, all right, just, just tape, tape the, the safety, the dead man switch closed so that the, the gas will stay on and it won't keep, the switch won't keep activating and turning the gas off. So, so that's what they did. Uh, the Olympic runner hands the flaming torch to Dave. He looks at it just as planned, tosses it into the gutter right under a Lincoln Town car, which is parked at the curb, right under the gas tank. And, and later on, I, I, I looked up, where is the gas tank in Lincoln Town car? And sure enough, it's in the back, right over the torch, yeah. which is still burning because I had asked the, the prop person to take this, the dead man switch closed. So fortunately, Dave's uh, security person was, was there and had the presence of mind to run over to the driver's side and start banging on the window. And there was a driver in the in the Lincoln Town Guard, and the Lincoln Town Guard drove drove off the, the torch. <laughs> we weren't uh, we weren't right uh, right next to a, a car bomb <laughs> covered all of us in flaming gasoline. Uh, adventures in late night. Yeah, um, yeah, that's that's a fun job. <laughs> yeah, well, to make you look better, not you didn't uh, kill your boss, but you you saved his life when you did the Alka-Seltzer suit. Uh, the, the, the witch suit, sorry, the, 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 the Alka-Seltzer suit, yeah. oh, the suit of Alka-Seltzer, yeah, oh boy, another near-death experience. The, the idea was Dave was doing suits, like suit of Velcro and suit of magnets, and somebody had the idea, how about a, a suit covered with Alka-Seltzer tablets, and the, the, the prop person had, or the or scenic designer had constructed a plexiglass a model of a plexiglass tank into which we would dip Dave covered with the, the suit covered with Alka-Seltzer tablets. And she comes up to the writer's office to, to see if people are there that she could get their opinion on, on the, the plexiglass uh, tank. And I looked at it and, and I'm trying to remember my science that I took in school and what I knew about Alka-Seltzer. And I, I said, you know, I think, I think that the, the between the water and the top of the tank is going to fill with carbon dioxide. I think Alka-Seltzer produces carbon dioxide. And, uh, and she said, oh, you know, that's, that's kind of interesting. And, and I never actually connected the dots and said, so anybody in there who has no breathing apparatus will be breathing <laughs> carbon dioxide and will suffocate. Uh -huh. uh, so sure enough, flash forward to rehearsal and uh, our, our fantastic head writer, Steve O'Donnell, happened mm -hmm. to be the same build as Dave. So he was going to try out the suit of Alka-Seltzer. Uh, so he's on cables and the cables hoist him over the tank of water. They lower him in. The, the Alka-Seltzer tablets start furiously bubbling and poor Steve is just gasping for air. His, his head is just above water, but but the, the top of the, the tank is uh, about a foot over his head. And somebody starts yelling, pull him out, pull him out. And, uh, and I spoke to him later. And he said, yeah, he, all he can remember is <laughs> it was a nurse that there happened to be a nurse on call in the studio and she was hovering over him. And, uh, and I don't think he actually passed out, but, uh -huh. but yeah, he, he could have suffocated <laughs> as a, a, a human sacrifice to a, our stupid comedy. Right. Comedies. <laughs> and then when Dave did it, when Dave did it, he, he did wear a, a small scuba tank. So, so he was in no, no danger. So, so Steve, I think, is the one who uh, who saved his life. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Where's I, Chris? I could, I, I could I could have, but I didn't. <laughs> I had to let Steve do it. 
<laughs> was Chris Elliott around when you were there? Oh, yeah. Chris came up with the, I believe he came up with the ideas for, for two of the, the most memorable Emmy winning shows that we did. The, uh, the Christmas show and um, Summertime Sunshine Special, I think it was called. I think those <laughs> both won Emmys. So, so yeah, he was doing a lot of, a lot of innovative comedy that, uh, that really helped the show get recognized critically. And, uh, and this, the sort of comedy pieces that are an example of the way the, the new writers try different stuff and build mm -hmm. on what the, what the previous writers have done. Yeah. He's one of my favorite, uh, just people. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you decide to leave Letterman? I was there for about six years and it turns out that there were a few other writers who were kind of feeling, Oh, let's, let's try Hollywood because mm -hmm. none of us were talking to each other, but within the space of about three or four months, I would say at least three people, four people had decided to, to make the move to LA and it was, it was a working for Dave was a, it was fantastic. It was a lot of fun. I learned a lot, but I just wanted to, to try writing sitcoms and one hours and movies and, and late night uh, with David Letterman and the late night genre is it's, it's fun. It's rewarding. It's great. If you want to write jokes and, and what I call short form comedy, but there's other stuff you have to learn to, to write sitcoms and, mm -hmm. and one hour. You have to learn how to write a story that engages people and grabs them and how to create characters. And you, you can't really do that on late night unless you are writing scripts on spec and taking classes. The skills aren't directly transferable. I still had to convince people in L.A. that I knew how to write a, a sitcom because I'd never written a sitcom. So right. I wrote a I wrote a spec sitcom. I wrote a spec episode of Cheers. Which, okay, which I really liked. That's a great show. Mm -hmm. um, so the reason I left is basically I just wanted to try other kinds of writing and and try the whole L.A. show business, mainstream primetime comedy thing, mm -hmm. drama. And then you ended up. Uh, for, it was the first job you got when you went to L.A. Was in Living Color. In Living Color, yeah. So I was writing sketches for people who weren't Dave. So that was a mm -hmm. lot of fun, too. That, a great show. got a lot of attention. Uh, and uh, Yeah, they certainly did stuff on that show that, that Dave wouldn't have done. Just <laughs> yeah, and, stuff. Yeah, as you can yeah. imagine. Yeah. Were you, uh, did you collaborate a lot with the cast of In Living Color? Or were you mostly on your own with the other writers? Um, you would collaborate with the cast if you had an idea or if they had an idea, somebody on the cast had an idea, they would come in and talk to the writers. It was mostly the writers coming up with sketches and pitching them to Keenan and then mm -hmm. decide which ones that you wanted to do. But, uh, but yeah, at least once or twice, Jim Carrey would come in and sit down and say, hey, I have this idea. And I'd say, oh, that's that's really funny let's yeah. let's work that up and so that was that was fun too was was paul mooney around when when you were writing there not when i was writing there no okay because i heard heard this story i wanted to see if it was true 
where Keenan put <laughs> put him put him like under like a shitty uh, office because he realized that he was only funny when he was angry. <laughs> I oh, heard that, that story. That but, is funny. Um, <laughs> it's possible. Yeah, yeah. whatever works. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. What wow. You need that's, to do? <laughs> that's masterful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then you're you uh, you're right on Living Color. Then you do a couple sitcoms, hanging with Mr. Cooper, right? Yep, hanging with Mr. Cooper, a sitcom called Scorch, which is about a a rubber dragon, actually a real dragon that uh, a guy has to pretend is uh, a a fake dragon, and he's a ventriloquist. (laughs) Okay. That was the premise. And uh, The Brave New World of Charlie Hoover I worked on, which was cool. It was Sam Kinison. It was a vehicle for Sam Kinison. Oh, really? Screaming Sam Kinison. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he was trying to. He was a nice guy, uh-huh. and he was he was trying to like get his get his life together and right. and prove that he could be responsible. And 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 he did great. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a fun show. And then maybe a year after that, you know, he died in that. Uh, the car accident on the way to Vegas, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, Sam Kinison was always, uh, he was a real, uh, a real phenomenon, really hilarious. Whenever he yeah. was on the Letterman show, oh, <laughs> yeah. be like, whoa, yeah, he's great. <laughs> that guy's amazing. <laughs> uh, very, very distinctive and a unique performer. Mm-hmm. So but that was how, fun to work with him. I bet. How, and how, also how, Tim Matheson too. Oh, I had, yeah, a great cast. Tim Matheson from Animal House. He played, uh, I forget his character, but another <laughs> nice guy too. Yeah. How, how then how'd you get the, the head writing job for the Chevy Chase show? Uh, I think that was a, as I remember my, my agent said they're looking for a head writer and I just went and talked to Chevy and kind of had the urge to, to get back in the late night because mm-hmm. I had learned so much on, on, Late night with David Letterman, and I thought, oh, okay, this is this would be kind of cool. Starting a new late night show from scratch. I wonder how that would work, and you know, it'd be a chance to to kind of be a head writer, which I had never been before. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we hired a staff and wrote some comedy, and the rest is history. <laughs> for, <laughs> for TV uh, students of television, may may remember that. The Chevy Chase show lasted, I think, about five weeks, and and sadly, it has made a number of worst shows ever on television lists. Yeah, which uh, which was, <laughs> I can see why people would say that, but behind the scenes, it, it was uh, it it was a fairly pleasant experience actually. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we had a good writing staff. We did good comedy. Um, Chevy was was a very nice guy, and the show just didn't work. Why Why do you think it it didn't work? I think it was mostly because a, a lot of a late night talk show is talking to guests, and that's a skill that even even the hosts who are who turn out to be really good at it right have to to learn how to do how to listen to the guests, how to pretend you're interested when you're not interested right. at all. And I, I just don't think 
Chevy was interested in that part of doing that show. Mm-hmm. I think he would have been more comfortable doing Saturday Night Live five nights a week, which you physically can't do. It, uh, that would be, well, let's see, SNL does maybe an hour of, let's see, how much comedy do they do? An hour of comedy? And that, would, depends when you who subtract you the commercials and the, yeah, the, yeah exactly. it depends on what you define as comedy. <laughs> uh, but you, you just, you can't hire a writing staff in, in a prop department. You can't physically execute that much comedy mm-hmm. and um, so you're left with talking to guests and and he just i don't think he was that into it yeah i'm a big chevy chase fan and uh some of the sketches that they did like the the wax museum sketch you saw that oh, yeah that's... some of that and... was very funny i have never seen like an actual a lot of it's hard to find but yeah but that that one is is on youtube and that's uh that was a a very successful piece and if we had been able to kind of do pieces like that consistently and, and more of them uh it might have made a difference maybe not but uh but that was a that was a lot of fun we, mm-hmm. we went to that the idea was uh, chevy is standing it's a tape piece he's standing outside the hollywood wax museum he says you know a lot of people think that uh, because i'm a celebrity i'm a celebrity i i you know i don't have to have a second job well that's just not true i, I work here and he goes inside, goes upstairs, puts on wax dummy makeup. And then you cut to he's sitting in a, a wax tableau of other talk show hosts in the, the Hollywood Wax Museum. And so it's a, it's a hidden camera thing where people walk by and, and Chevy comes to life and, and startles mm-hmm. them. And, and I'm off camera. They had to clear out the, the Madame Tussauds torture exhibit to make room for, for our cameras and monitors and uh, for, for the monitors and the, and the crew and um we had it an hour and a half because chevy had to go somewhere else and we luckily got enough great reactions that it edited edited together great mm-hmm. and we added a, a a gag at the end where in the beginning chevy goes up to the the mash uh, the tv show mash there was a tableau of uh, hot lips Houlihan and mm-hmm. Mulcahy and hawkeye and chevy makes a joke about uh, about hot lips and then at the end he goes back like the, the meal whistle blows in the museum so he says all right time to you know time to have lunch he goes back to the, the mash exhibit and goes up to father mulcahy who, who comes to life yeah <laughs> and uh, he says all right let's go let's go uh and have lunch oh sure chevy and they walk out together and the idea is everybody in the museum is is real uh, and we had to we had to fly um fly uh, what was his name? Oh, I'm sorry. Great actor. I had to fly him in from retirement, yeah. and uh, he, uh, <laughs> he just did a great favor, and uh, mm. and it was a, a great piece. Yeah. So, so yeah, what are you gonna do? Right. Yeah, so you the, do but, what you can. Yeah. But then that show ends, and then you go, you go on to be the head writer or co-head writer of uh, the Tonight, Tonight Show with Jay Leno. That's right. Co-head writer of the Tonight Show with Jay Leno. It um, it was very exciting. Mm-hmm. because Jay was always one of the, the best guests on Late Night with David Letterman. Right. Always very funny. Hard worker, really, really funny. And he's hosting The Tonight Show, and I would get to be his co-head writer. And I thought, all right. Uh, Chevy Chase Show didn't work out. I'm in Late Night. I'm having fun being back in Late Night. Um, let me see what I, what, I can, what I can do over at The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Yeah. What's the... Uh main difference what's the what are the differences between being the head writer and just uh 
regular writer? The, the head writer, head writers have to, to plan the comedy ahead of time. That's one of the main things they do. On a show like The Tonight Show, uh, there's the monologue, and that had a dedicated team of monologue writers who spend most of their most of their day writing jokes for the monologue and it was a long monologue but what the head writers had to do is fill the comedy slots for the rest of the show so there was the the monologue and then there was the main comedy piece uh go to commercial and i believe and there were comedy pieces during the monologue sometimes and then i believe there was a comedy piece elsewhere in the show, later in the show. Mm-hmm. So you have a board where, where you have spaces for all those comedy pieces weeks ahead. And you, the, the head writer has to look at the board and, and say, oh, we need a comedy. We need a main comedy piece for Wednesday. Let's mm-hmm. all get together. Let's pitch ideas for the main comedy piece. Uh, so that's that's the main thing you have to do is plan the comedy ahead of time with enough get, giving the, the production departments enough time to actually physically produce the piece. If you're doing a, a new gift items piece, a wacky props piece, you would need about two weeks uh, for, for the prop department to build the jokes that you had written. You give them the script, you say, we need 10 props. You could probably expect them in about two weeks. So that's a piece two weeks from now. You don't have to worry about because mm-hmm. those prop pieces usually work great. Another thing the head writers do is they they do a first pass at whittling down the jokes. Like if you do, if the staff is writing, including the monologue writers, they would contribute jokes to pieces like that too. Mm-hmm. If the writing staff turns in a lot of jokes for the new gift items piece for two weeks from now, the the head writer, it's good for for him or her to to go down and, and down the list of all the jokes and pick the ones that that he or she thinks will work the best. And that way the, the host doesn't have to, to look at the stuff that isn't quite as strong. So the head writer will go in, pitch to the host the, the, the ideas that he or she thinks will work. And if you get enough, allowing for some pieces, some items or jokes to fall out during rehearsal, then uh, you put the piece into production. And let's see, what else does a head writer do? No, that's basically it. Those yeah. are the two big tasks. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a management task in addition mm-hmm. to a cranking out the comedy task. Right. Management and st- and planning and, and some strategy too, like figuring mm-hmm. out what sort of pieces should we be doing, could we be doing that that other shows like us aren't doing, mm-hmm. because that would help help you set your show apart from the from the competition. There's that there's that marketing I was talking about. Yeah. When I worked at General Foods, that's how I learned that stuff. Well, you use the marketing to kind of not turn the show around, uh, but get the show to beat Dave in the ratings, right? Uh, that, that sort of thinking, I think, helped helped us do that. Mm-hmm. There were there were a lot of factors. When I got to the Tonight Show, the, the Tonight Show was being beaten in the ratings pretty soundly by Late Show with David Letterman. Mm-hmm. Dave, at that at some at, at that point, had had moved to CBS at 11.30, so he was head-to-head with, with Jay for the first time. And he was the competition. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I did was I knew I knew the show, I knew Dave's show very well, and I knew the sort of pieces that he liked to do, and, and I, I watched the show and kind of figured out, oh, okay, he's not doing, he doesn't do characters, for example. 
like Johnny Carson would, would do characters like right. Karnak, the Magnificent, and then Blabby and Soyar Turbo. And so I had that in the back of my mind when we had the idea for for Mr. Brain, which is a, a character that that I created based on something that Jay did in rehearsal. Mr. Brain was a, a video effect that we would put on Jay that would make his, ha- his head look enormous. His, his brain looked really enormous. His, his hair would be floppy and, and uh, and he would do this character of being like a, somebody from, from outer space who's really smart and insulting and abrasive and you puny humans, you're all idiots. Mm-hmm. And so it was a joke delivery vehicle where Mr. Brain would get a question and he would have a funny answer in the character of this, this imperious, bossy, obnoxious, brilliant person. So, so that, that character piece uh, worked and, and that was an example of, oh, here's something we can give our audience that they're not getting on, on the other late night shows, in particular Dave's show, that uh, will set us apart from, from Dave. And also that is really funny, that <laughs> the audience loved it. It was, mm-hmm. a, it was a piece that we, we wanted to do more of, but we didn't want to burn it out. So we developed other characters that we could alternate. Mm-hmm. So there was that. And it was basically uh, a matter of just coming up with pieces that Jay could do, that he liked to do, that, that he, he was good at doing, that, that Dave wasn't doing, that uh, uh, would also show off L.A. That was another thing we tried to do is do a lot of out of the studio take pieces, uh, remotes. At that point, Dave wasn't doing as many remote pieces where he'd go up outside of the studio as much. and. So we thought, well, okay, Jay likes to do that. In fact, he wants to do it. Every week he wanted to do a, a remote piece. And so let's do those pieces. Let's keep doing those pieces and let's show off LA. Let's show people Disneyland. And so we would shoot pieces at Disneyland and the Hollywood Walk of Fame and, and the Hollywood sign and mm-hmm. just as a way of opening up the show visually and, and again, kind of highlighting, oh, you're going to get something different if you watch Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Because mm-hmm. the history kind of gets reduced down to, yeah, you had Hugh Grant on, and then from then on, it was smooth sailing, but it was a lot more complicated. Yeah, that. it was a lot more complicated. Uh, Hugh Grant was was definitely a factor, but but he was the reason a lot of people tuned into the show mm-hmm. that particular night and sampled the show, people who hadn't necessarily watched the show for, for a while. And we made sure that that we showed we showed off that a lot of our strong com- comedy pieces that night and for the, the week after Hugh Grant was on mm-hmm. and and the, the enormous audience that tuned in for for Hugh Grant who uh, for people who don't know the story Hugh Grant had been arrested uh, with a prostitute on Hollywood Boulevard I think mm-hmm. and to, to his credit he he was booked to appear on the Tonight Show and and did not cancel. Yeah. And it was his first appearance in the media, I think, since his arrest. And we expected a, a, a lot of people to tune in and sure enough, right. that's what happened. So what they saw was uh, a totally revamped Tonight Show. Mm-hmm. Jay had, he was in a new studio to put him closer to the audience. Uh, he, he had a much longer monologue that he had been doing. Um, he, gradually, he had ramped up the number of jokes in the mm-hmm. monologue. You're doing the new comedy pieces. And uh, so it was a combination of factors, plus the lead-ins. <laughs> there was a show, ER, a mm. medical show, 
huge hit for NBC. Right. And we, uh, we got a big boost from, from the, the ratings of, of ER because mm-hmm. some of that, the people watching in prime time at 10 o'clock tend to be more likely to stick with whatever late night show was on, on the same network. So we had that benefit too. So it was, uh, it was a lot of factors, but you're right. People do have seen this. Well, Hugh Grant as if like, well, if Hugh Grant hadn't been on, right. Yeah. That show never would have, would have gone up in the ratings, but, but the ratings were increasing steadily even before Hugh Grant mm-hmm. was on the show. What were the main differences between working for Letterman and working for Leno? Um, it was, uh, Jay was, I think more accessible mm-hmm. and uh, so accessible that you could just stroll into his office and say, Hey, you know, somebody had this idea. What do you think? And, uh, he, Jay spent a lot of his day working on the monologue, crafting it. Uh, so he, he tended to, to, to leave the rest of the comedy to, to me and the other, uh, Joe Madeiros, the other co-head mm-hmm. writer and the, and the staff. So, uh, he was, I think, more accessible than Dave. And also we had a lot more leeway to try stuff and, and to, to, to just try stuff, yeah. which, which was Dave did a lot of that in the early days of late night with David Letterman. But, but as time went on, he, you know, he wanted to do a different show and didn't right. do much of it. So I'd say those are the two main differences. Okay, then, then you, when did you decide to leave The Tonight Show? I was there for two years, and I decided I wanted to come back east. That's, my family was in the Boston area, and I was n- never really that comfortable in California. Yeah. It's, it's, I spent my whole life on the East Coast, and I right. just felt like California, I had a great time, and I, I did all the California things, and springs and uh, Disneyland and all the tourist attractions. And I just felt like I wanted to come back East and Dave said, sure. Mm-hmm. Then you came the uh, head writer. Of yes. Head writer the on the late show where I stayed for another six years. Mm-hmm. And what were, what was the, obviously it was different. You, you said mentioned Dave was not doing like field pieces and stuff. Was that the main difference between the early show and the, uh, the show that would, the late show when you joined? That was one of the differences. It was, uh, Dave started to move away from produced pieces more. Um, I love pieces like uh, new gift items and mm-hmm. wacky props. And, and we were doing less of those. Um, and it was also, uh, it was, it was tense because yeah. the, the late show was, was like kicking butt in the ratings for the first year or so. And then the tonight show started to, to get better and the Raiders started creating, started to go up and, and then I came back to the late show and the tonight show was still beating uh, the late show. I think it, uh, I think the Tonight Show beat the Late Show in the ratings for the next eighteen years. Yeah, I so, think so yeah. So the atmosphere was was a little uh, a little tenser. It was a little less freewheeling than it mm. was at twelve thirty at NBC when you're kind of the only game in town at twelve thirty and you could do whatever right. you want. 
Yeah. And then you go on to uh, do you write uh, write for Monk, and you then you become a producer on Monk. Yeah, that was uh, a, a terrific show, mm-hmm. and way back when, while I was still working at General Foods, and I wanted to get into show business, I was writing a, a spec episode of an, an old light murder mystery called Heart to Heart, um, and. Just fast forward a couple of decades, and and that's what I'm working on is a light mystery show. Right. So so my my first spec was not spec comedy; it was a spec light mystery show. And so I'm I'm thrilled that I got a chance to do that. Yeah. And I spent my my time coming up with creative ways to kill people, <laughs> to, which is not that different from from comedy. It, I think the, the, the common element in writing comedy and writing mystery is you're creating puzzles. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the case of a joke, you're creating a, a a joke that ends in a little puzzle and people have to figure out, well, why did he say that? Oh, I get it. It makes sense because that ties together the, the first part of the joke. And that's what that's about. It's the, it's the same thing for a mystery. You, have, you, you devise this clever puzzle and then you, you plant clues and yeah. you, you have to execute a certain series of steps to get the reaction of, oh, wow, that's really cool. That's how we killed the guy. Yeah, that's interesting. It's all, it's all about surprise. Yeah, surprise is a big element and unexpectedness, mm-hmm. uh, which is a part of surprise, obviously. Yeah. So, so that, was, uh, that, was a, that was a ton of fun, too. Um, and I don't want yeah. to take up all your time, but uh, I was looking at your LinkedIn. Did you do something with the WWE for a little bit? I did. I was on the creative team for the WWE. Really? A little bit. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was very cool. It was like, um, it was like being backstage at, at the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. It was mm-hmm. a spectacle. It, it, and the, the idea was just to get a huge crowd reaction, boos or hisses um, with these these larger than life characters yeah. uh, for writing lines uh, for them to deliver in the ring, uh, trying to figure out, okay, what would be a good storyline to get people to, to root for this character or hate for this character and make them want to... Um, pay money for the pay-per-view to mm-hmm. find out how it turns out uh so yeah so i did that for you know, six months or so yeah this is uh, fascinating because i'm a big uh professional wrestling fan uh do you ever have any interactions with vince mcmahon yes i did yeah how was uh, that he really i was gonna say he really knows what he's doing but that would be understating it uh-huh. uh yeah, he's he's just a genius when it comes to to figuring out w- what to do with this 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 cast, this roster mm-hmm. to to get people to to want to see more of it. Yeah, uh, very nice guy, very smart. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited that I got to work with him. Uh, yeah, that's very it's very, very cool. cool. Yeah, yeah. And then you mentioned earlier the that your degree has something to do with what you're doing now. What is, what are you uh, working on now? Yeah, I, um, 
at some point I started teaching comedy writing for late night TV. Mm, I read your, uh, your book writing. For oh yeah. Thank writing. you. Yeah. This is comedy writing. For late. Yeah. In fact, for people watching the video, here we go. Comedy there you go. Late night TV. There we go. So, uh, so I was teaching comedy writing for late night TV at the people's improv theater in Manhattan. And I thought after I had taught it a couple dozen times, I thought I would write up the, the material in a book. And to do that, I had to figure out how to write a joke because mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to, actually this, this came from when I was planning the curriculum for, for the class. I, I decided, all right, well, let me divide up the, the show, the, the comedy pieces into categories like desk pieces and remotes. And, and the one category I wasn't really uh, sure how to write was a monologue joke because I had written a lot of jokes like monologue jokes. I had never actually written for the monologue, uh, except for the Caroline Ray show. I did write for monologue, mm -hmm. monologue jokes for that. But I, I didn't know what steps to tell my students to take to write a joke. And so I kind of read a lot of monologue jokes um, that writers had written for late night TV. And I figured out steps for writing a joke from starting from a how to pick a topic, um, how to write a punchline, how to fill in between the topic and the punchline. So that became part of the book. And then I was trying to think of who else might be interested in these, these algorithms, these rules that I had figured out. And I found out there was something called computational humor, which is the, the study of how to get computers to recognize and generate comedy. So what I'm doing now is I have some software which takes the, the algorithms in the book and I put them in a computer code and I have a, I have software that will add live jokes like in a conversation. Okay. So if, so if you have a, a conversational AI, as they call it, if you have a, a social robot, like a Siri or an Alexa mm -hmm. or like a, a computer buddy, it's a way to give the computer buddy a, a sense of humor. Huh. So I've patented the software. I'm going to deliver a, a research paper on it at a conference in a few months. And it, it really all comes from what I, what I learned on the Letterman show and from all the other writers that I've, I've ever worked with and, and from figuring out how to write a joke. And I'm, I'm going to hopefully take, take uh, comedy into the machine age and, yeah. and at, at some point, if you have a, a, a little robot buddy uh, <laughs> and your robot buddy uh, can can crack a, a joke occasionally, the buddy will be a friendlier little computer buddy and maybe you'll be a little less lonely <laughs> if you have your little robot buddy. Yeah. So uh, so that's what I'm doing is I'm, I'm working on, it's called WitScript. It's software that gives a, an artificial intelligence a sense of humor, hmm. which is... Uh, a lot of people have been trying to figure out how to do that. So I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah. That well, is... how do you, do you have a process to, to write jokes? Do you have like, how do you, how do you write a joke? Um, read... Yeah, that's interesting. I don't have like a, like when I was reading your book, you break down how to write a monologue joke. And I realized that I was doing a lot, most of those things, like making like the list of topics, associations and stuff like that. I wasn't doing that like I wasn't self-aware enough to realize that I was doing that. That's just what came naturally to me. So 
a lot of what I read, because a lot of people say, yeah, you can't teach somebody how to be funny, which I kind of, I agree with that. You can't teach somebody how to be funny, but you can teach them like the mechanics of how to write a joke and stuff like that. Um, so it was interesting because I, to see like the, the breaking it down into how, like how you do it is basically how I was doing it. Just, I just wasn't aware of that's what I was doing. Oh, that's, that's really interesting because when I was writing, when I was preparing the class and trying to teach people how to write monologue jokes, I, I did some research. I read some books on how to write comedy and, you know, here are the keys to comedy and, you know, all the books, if you type comedy writing right. to Amazon, yeah. these are the books that come up. And I, yeah. I read them and I, cause I was trying to figure out what do I teach these, these students. And, and even though you say that's the process that you use, the process that I eventually figured out is the one that you use basically. Mm. Why in the, in the hundreds of years, people have been trying to figure out what makes people laugh. Why didn't anybody write that down? Yeah. It, it, it just, and, and I, and I don't know whether it's because like, like you said, you weren't self-aware enough or maybe you had no incentive to write it down, but, but is, is some of it, uh, comedians, comics, they, they know these techniques, but if they reveal them, it'll be like a magician revealing the trick. It might be. I, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's a question. You're the first comic who I've ever asked this question to. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. See, I'm at the point where I don't care. I'll throw the curtains back and show the people that, that you know, the wizard of Oz behind the curtain. I don't care. Yeah. It's like, here's, here's how it's done. <laughs> well, I wish Why? I had a better answer for you. Um, no, that's that, that's a great answer. So it could be that that people who write jokes don't realize exactly what they're doing. Yeah, enough to know that there's there's a system, there's a, a series of steps that you take uh, when you're writing a joke. And part of it could be, I'm not going to tell people that uh, you know this is this is what I'm doing because otherwise it seems very mechanical and, and less magical. That, yeah, it yeah, that's like, could be part of it too. It is like, uh, yeah, sort well, of like it, math. Can I can I give you an for for your your listeners? Can I give you an example of a joke people want to know might want to know what these algorithms are? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually I have an example here. All right. Uh, this is a joke from Late Night with Seth Meyers. Uh, he told it the week of May twenty eighth, so it's fairly recent. Here's the joke, and I'll I'll show you how he he wrote this. Or his writers wrote this. The joke is: Producers have announced that a documentary about lifestyle expert Martha Stewart will stream on Netflix. Netflix account. She'll show you how to make one out of driftwood and corn husks. Okay, so that was the joke. Um, how was that written? All right. The topic is producers have announced that a documentary about lifestyle expert Martha Stewart will stream on Netflix. So what you do is you you think of the topic and mm -hmm. you pick out what I call topic handles. Two nouns or noun phrases usually in the, the topic that are the most interesting. That, that you, you pay attention to the most when you hear that topic. So in this case, it's Martha Stewart and Netflix, probably. Everything else is just kind of not as relevant. Right. So then what you do is you do what, what you said you do, is you brainstorm things that you think of when you think of Martha Stewart. You brainstorm things that you think of when you think of Netflix. I call those associations. Mm -hmm. uh, so Martha Stewart has associations like... Uh, Oh, with life, lifestyle expert, um, went to jail, insider trading, uh, crafts, 
And so somewhere on that list is, is crafts mm -hmm. and examples of crafts are pine cone, making stuff out of pine cones and hot glue guns and things like that. Okay, so that's the Martha Stewart list. On the list of Netflix associations, which is the other topic handle, um, Netflix account, having a Netflix account. So to create the punchline, and if you don't have a Netflix account, she'll show you how to make one out of driftwood and corn husks. You just take an association from one list and you link it in the punch using the punchline to an association on the other list. Right. So the writer linked Netflix account with crafts. So it's a crafty version of the Netflix account. And uh, the writer also used, see, this is how mechanical it is. Why? Well, yeah. It really makes it, it takes, it strips the magic out of the. <laughs> yeah. Completely. The joke also uses what I call joke maximizer number nine. The joke maximizer number nine is get specific. Mm -hmm. So the punchline isn't just, uh, and if you don't have a Netflix account, she'll show you how to make one out of um, things laying around the house. Right. Or it's specifically driftwood and corn husks. Okay. So yeah. that makes it a little bit funnier. And, and another another joke maximizer the writer used is uh, joke maximizer number seven. Use stop consonants, alliteration, and assonance. Mm -hmm. So driftwood and corn husks. D and driftwood, stop consonant. T, stop consonant. Driftwood is a third one. Driftwood has three stop consonants. Right. Corn husks. Corn husks. Two comedy K sounds. Okay. So there's a lot of craft that went into that joke. Craft that anybody can learn and anybody can use when, when you're writing a joke or when in any kind of writing. So, so when you present it like this, you can, I, I think you can see, Oh, okay. Maybe a computer could do that. And that's, right. that's what gave me the idea to write the software. And, and so that's where I am now. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so I, I know you, you knew all this stuff, but um, for your listeners who may be curious about what I mean by algorithms, that's the sort of thing right. I'm talking about. Well, thanks for doing this, man. Uh, we'll wrap up on this question. Um, what's something you know now that you wish you had known when you were first starting out? I, I can't think of anything that I wish I had, that I, if I had known back then that I would have done something differently. Mm -hmm. One thing that I figured out pretty quickly, but I, probably still would have done the same sort of things is uh, to realize that if you're a writer in television, you're really a freelancer for your whole career, that, that no job lasts forever. Mm -hmm. some, some jobs last for decades. Some jobs last for a week, for five weeks in the case of the Chevy Chase show. Right. Uh, so you always have to be thinking of what are you going to do next? Uh, in most cases, if you're lucky enough to get on a show that lasts decades, they're very rare and, and you're very fortunate. Otherwise, you, you you have to meet people. You have to write spec scripts. You have to always be writing something new. If you get an agent, uh, the, the agent always has something new that, that he or she can use to sell you. Um, so having worked on on Late Night, which is a, obviously a show that went for years and years and years, um, I was sort of spoiled into to thinking on some level, oh, I'll just do this again in, in Hollywood. Uh, I didn't really believe that because I was writing spec scripts and and I realized, oh, you know, not every show is late night with David Ladder in terms of mm -hmm. longevity. Uh, but I think a lot of people don't know that about working in, and it probably applies to any creative uh, profession. Mm -hmm. 
it's uh, you're always selling yourself. You're always uh, you're always you're basically a freelancer. Yeah. And the other thing that um, isn't so much that I, I wish I had had, but um, but because it just didn't exist is uh, is is books like mm-hmm. this uh, this comedy writing for late night TV book didn't exist until I wrote it, and a lot of people have said it's a great book. People have like overseas have started comedy talk shows based on the book. Oh yeah. Out, okay. This is, this is how we do this. Here's our, our manual and we're going to do this. And there's a, a show in Mexico. Oh, thank you for your book. It's great. The show's been on the air. It's like, wow, very, <laughs> very cool. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm very pleased that happened. Uh, so my, another piece of advice I might have for uh, people who want to get into television writing is read these books. There are a lot of, great books about writing sitcoms and drama and certainly mm-hmm. movies, movie gurus. And now there's my book for late night. So for a hundred bucks, you can buy half a dozen books and, and, uh, and read them and just, just learn from experts. A lot of the stuff that when I was starting out, you had to kind of figure out yourself or, or get a mentor and, and get taught by that person. So just, just do your homework. And it's, it's so much more available now, especially with the internet. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much for doing this, Joe. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was fun. Yeah. Good to talk to you. You too. Hey, baby, I hear the blues are calling. Toss salads and scrambled eggs. Mercy. And maybe I seem a bit confused. Yeah, maybe. But I got you pegged. (laughs) But I don't know what to do with those toss salads and scrambled eggs. They're calling again. Scrambled eggs all over my face. What is a boy to do? Mabry has left the building.